This was only a matter of time, really. The X-Men are one of my formative childhood influences. I was in the second grade when X-Men the Animated Series premiered. I was raging the Target demo. I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I have since read thousands of comics, have paid attention to every single media iteration of the X-Men. Throughout my childhood and beyond, I started giving info dumps about various cartoon lore to a whole bunch of friends and relatives, much to their irritation. I'm an insufferable prick about the X-Men. I have very, very important opinions about them. I was going to do something related to the X-Men on this show at some point or another. Which begs the question, why Pride of the X-Men? There are a couple of reasons for this. One thing uh, is that the movies, their creative direction has been supervised by Brian Singer, who is an alleged scare quotes rapist. And I do not know how to approach, at the moment, media made by people like that on this program. So skipping over that for the time being, possibly permanently, we'll find out. The other reason is that Pride of the X-Men is short. It's only 22 minutes long, and that means that my ranting can be more easily curtailed. Because once I get rolling with the X-Men, I will never shut the fuck up about them. I have co-hosts on this program mostly just to, you know, provide color and make things more interesting and extend things that have sort of a back-and-forth thing. But I suspect that more often than not, their role here is going to be to rein me in. My name is Ryan. This is a Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this episode are all of my siblings, Sylvan, Cheryl, and Sarah on this one. Cheryl, by circumstance, she just happened to be here when we were doing the episode, so she's here too. Hi! Okay, so for most of you, this is the first time in a while that you have watched Pride of the X-Men. Uh, we, it was released as a VHS tape in the early 90s, and it was one of those things that was just put into our regular rotation. And we watched this a lot because we were the type of kids who would watch a movie over and over and over again if we were into it. I actually brought it into school with me when I was in first grade and had the teacher play it for the class. That's how I learned what the word violent meant, because before she agreed to put it on, she asked me if the cartoon was violent, and I said no, because I got from context that violent would have meant that she wouldn't put it on. And then one of my classmates came over to me and was like, do you know what the word violent means? And he defined it, and then I was like, oh no, oh no. And I found my teacher, I'm like, I'm sorry, it's actually very violent, but it was okay, she put it on anyway. Well, yeah, they only blow up robots. That's how you get around things in kids' cartoons. You can maim the ever-loving shit out of a robot. You can throw one into a volcano if you feel like it. Yeah, but again, we were six, and it's a public school, so probably uh, probably should have kept to, like, the whatever the hell we were watching when we were six reading Rainbow. Bill! 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 Bill, not the science guy. And nurse Okay, before we dive into the episode itself... <laughs> I thought it'd be nice to do a um, run-through of the X-Men's prior appearances in animation. The very first time that they show up is in the Marvel Super Heroes, a 1966 program. If you have no idea what the hell this is, you are lucky. In 1966, it was produced with uh, five individual segments devoted to Captain America, Iron Man, the Hulk, Thor, and finally the Submariner. This was done with what is charitably known as limited animation, although to keep this in perspective, this is limited animation in a way that makes uh, Scooby-Doo look like Fantasia. They literally photocopied comic panels onto animation boards and then added the mouth moving and nothing else, and then occasionally moved an arm. Uh, The X-Men appeared in the 12th episode of the Submariner program called Doctor Doomsday, The Doom Allegiance, and Tug of Death. Not Uh, Tug of Doom? 
not Tug of Doom. <laughs> yeah, this adapted Fantastic Four number six, although to me, a lot of it was drawn from Fantastic Four annual number three. The show didn't have the rights to use the Fantastic Four because they were tied up in another cartoon at the time. So the X-Men were awkwardly shoved in. You see, Doctor Doom just hates the X-Men. The X-Men are his arch nemeses. So he uses this emotion manipulating ray to get a whole bunch of other bad guys like the Mandarin and the Mole Man to attack the X-Men. And then the X-Men fight them off with the assistance of the Avengers. And if that sounds rad, I need to remind you that this is a static image with occasionally the mouth moving. And also, they didn't have a female voice actor, so Jean Grey is sort of there. Also, they didn't call them the X-Men for some reason. They're called the Allies for Peace. That's an odd choice. So after that ignominious debut, uh, the X-Men next show up in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, a program that ran from 1981 to 1983. And if you know anything about this, you're probably already aware that founding X-Men Iceman was part of the Amazing Friends. Initially, the Human Torch was also going to be a member, but the Human Torch was possibly having another cartoon developed about him, but that was never made. So they wanted a fire person, and they created this new character called Firestar, who was then awkwardly shoved into the comic. She's a Jimmy Olsen or a Harley Quinn. The X-Men are on two episodes, and Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are in another one, but the X-Men aren't in that one. Well, most noteworthy aspect of this is that Wolverine is inexplicably Australian in it. We will be getting back to that. And once again, before we get into the episode itself, I should give a background about the uh, animation studio, or at the very least, I feel the need to, to provide one. Pride of the X-Men is part of the end of a run from what is called uh, DFE Films, which was founded in 1963 by Fritz Freeling and Hanna-Barbera mainstay. His last name is DePetri. Uh, the Patty, rather. They're best known for uh, the Pink Panther shorts. They also did most of the Dr. Seuss cartoons that weren't, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, you know, the Lorax, Cat in the Hat, that stuff. And they did a number of the later Looney Tunes 1960s ones that have the abstract WB intro, and they introduced Cool Cat, who is like this beatnik tiger. Most Looney Tunes aficionados consider those cartoons to be the worst of theater-era Looney Tune shorts. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I, I genuinely thought that that was the Cheetos guy. Like, I thought my childhood brain had, like, just morphed into a different <laughs> thing. So thank you for solving a puzzle I didn't know needed solving. Yes, the very last original Looney Tunes character to be created while there were still theatrical shorts was this tiger named Cool Cat who spoke with, like, a beatnik patois, and his shorts are terrible. And makes you crave Cheetos. <laughs> I legitimately don't even know what you're talking about. So, yeah. Anyways, towards the end of DFE's existence, they were contracted to do some Marvel cartoons. First was a Spider-Man short, because that was their signature character. And because Marvel was afraid that another animation studio was going to create a Spider-Woman, they quickly slapped together their own so they could have the legal rights to the name. So there's a cartoon for that. And another Fantastic Four cartoon with... Since the Human Torch was being auditioned for a solo series, they had to awkwardly replace him with a helper robot named Herbie. <laughs> yes, like the fucking car. All right, in 1981, Frizz Freeling decided that he was going to start working for Warner Brothers again, so he sold off his share, and Marvel's holding company, Cadence Industries, ended up snapping it up. The first cartoons under this new studio were for 
various Marvel properties, Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, but they then started producing animated series for Hasbro properties. First the Transformers, then G.I. Joe, uh, My Little Pony was also them, and and, uh, Gem and the Holograms. So in case you were wondering why your episode of Gem and the Holograms ended with like a production still of CGI Metal Spider-Man, you now know. And uh, they also developed Muppet Babies, which is by far the most successful Woo! show in their line. Muppet Babies. They make your dreams come true. They do, though. Every time. Margaret Loesch, who was the producer from Hasbro, who started getting involved in Marvel, she took a look at the comics and found that the X-Men were the most popular book at the time. They were selling even better than Spider-Man. They were just like, if we put the X-Men into outside media... People will like them and they will become popular. More on that later. But she decided to siphon away the budget for a 13th episode of a RoboCop cartoon to fund a pilot for an X-Men series that was named Pride of the X-Men, which is a pun on Pride of the Yankees, which is really weird and depressing considering that movie's about Lou Gehrig. The grunt work of the animation was delegated to Toei, who you might know best for doing the animation for uh, Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon. The pilot also loosely adapted the story from Uncanny X-Men number 139, written by Chris Claremont and illustrated by John Byrne, which isn't Kitty Pride's first appearance, but it is the one where she joins the team. Okay, so if anyone else doesn't have anything else to add, I am just going to recap the plot. Okay. Our story opens with breathless narrator Stan Lee in full huckster mode, informing us, that mutant terrorist Magneto is being transported to a metahuman prison by a military convoy. While Magneto is hobbled by a force field that neutralizes his powers, the convoy is unprepared for a rescue attempt by the White Queen. She's a member of the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists, as they're called in this show, and she uses telepathic illusions and a sort of a mind blast to free Magneto. What she does is that she manifests her, like, psychic energy into this sort of harpoon thing that she throws at the convoy. That doesn't, no, that's not real. Yeah, That's it, not her powers. It, it's really stupid looking, but it's also awesome, so I'm willing to let it slide. I also gotta say, I, I in retrospect, I'm really surprised that they pretty much just took her comic book costume and put that right in the kids' cartoon. His white queen is wearing a white S&M outfit. I mean... Storm's outfit is also fairly... It's a bikini. It's not as clearly fetish gear. True. It's got the little, like, link to hook the leash to. It's right does. over her navel. Okay, yeah, we're adopting Claremont. Claremont be kinky. Elsewhere, a very nervous Kitty Pride arrives at the X-Mansion. She has been summoned by a letter from Professor Xavier, who has revealed that he is aware that she is a mutant, and her parents have shoved her on a plane and, and, and let her go to New York unsupervised. She is 14. She, she states that. From Chicago. Let's make that even clearer. She's originally from Chicago. Professor X, every parent's nightmare. Anyway, she's horrified by the recent revelation that she's a mutant. Someone whose genes have taken a sudden evolutionary leap forward. While this often manifests in the individual attaining superhuman powers at the onset of puberty, Kitty can walk through walls, which she calls phasing, mutants are met by suspicion, fear, hostility, and even violence by the outside world. You might call it an awkward phase. But I'm... Couldn't wait for that. <laughs> I, could not. I raised she my hand. <laughs> 
Kitty is afraid that her mutation has branded her with a freakish stigma. Professor X uh, attempts to ameliorate Kitty's reservations. However, he also throws her in the deep end of the pool by just, like, projecting a psychic image instead of rolling the 15 feet over to meet her at the door. Yeah, he's too lazy to greet her. Lazy. Uh, He exposits that he uses his telepathic powers to head a school that teaches young mutants to use their powers responsibly. The most colorful facet of the school is the X-Men, a paramilitary band of mutant superheroes who protect a world that hates and fears them. Professor X then shows Kitty the Danger Room, a gymnasium that projects sophisticated holograms in order to help the X-Men hone their abilities. The audience is then introduced to the team, which includes, roll call, Cyclops, who can shoot force beam projections from his eyes. Storm, who can control the weather. She's the best. Colossus, who has an armored steel body that gives him superhuman strength and invulnerability. And it's a good choice that they don't have any sexual tension between Kitty Pride and Colossus in this particular incarnation. Put a pin in that, we will be getting back to it. He is the tank, literally. Dazzler, who can control... Dazzler is Cheryl's favorite. Dazzler can transform (laughs) sound into light beams. And, yeah, that's definitely as useful as you think it is. They amp it up a little bit in the show. Then there is Nightcrawler, who can teleport. And finally, and most notably, there is Wolverine. Perhaps you've heard of him. He has a metal exoskeleton that allows him to project claws from his hands that can cut through almost anything. He also has lots of other powers, but the show never mentions them, so I'm not going to bother. Well, I mean, like that accent. If we want to be... Technical, the metal exoskeleton isn't a power. Being, being Hugh Jackman. Yes. I'm going to be that guy. You don't need to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Nightcrawler immediately pours up to introduce himself to Kitty, and frightened by his demonic appearance, and possibly his creepiness, pinned on that one as well, and Kitty phases through the danger room console, uh, causing it to go haywire. This is quickly assuaged, but... It causes Wolverine to express that Kitty is too young and inexperienced to properly join the team. Probably the best team leader move or call ever is this is a child and she's unprepared for combat. And she's clearly emotionally vulnerable and having a difficult time already. Wolverine, though not sensitive about it, is the only one who's noticed. But also, like, yay that she's experienced stranger danger in the danger room. Magneto has sent his underlings Pyro and the Blob to retrieve the tracking coordinates for the Scorpio Comet passing by the Earth. The X-Men catch wind of this and head after them, leaving the X-Mansion vulnerable to an attack from Magneto and Juggernaut, who show up the instant after they leave. Juggernaut doesn't, like, regularly work with Magneto. That is weird, isn't it? I have read hundreds of X-Men comics, and as far as I can ascertain, he has never worked with Magneto. I thought so, okay. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, we've got a missed opportunity, though. Maybe they have the same tailor. Yeah, I should mention, uh, Pyro can manipulate fire, the blob is fat and can manipulate gravity, and Juggernaut is also super strong and nigh invulnerable, and he is uh, Professor X's stepbrother, contains uh, an almost Freudian hatred for him. Wait, 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 wait. wait, wait, wait. The blob can control gravity? Yes, nothing moves the blob because he can fix himself to a spot. Literally, I never knew that. I always thought that he was just super fucking heavy. And that's why they couldn't move him. You thought thought fat was his mutant power? (laughs) I was 
I've never read his introduction. I've only ever seen him in the animated series. Oh, you need to go back so. and read the 60s comics. They're so wonderfully bad. Well, I've, I've read some of the 60s comics, but I've never read the Blob's introduction. So, I've only ever seen the X-Men animated series episodes where they don't cover his power. Oh, yeah, he's no. just fat. He thought that he was just fat, and then the X-Men show up and convince him he's a mutant, and then he thinks he's like a god. It's great. I thought he had like a low center of gravity, and it was like one of those things going on. If nothing else, anyone who listens to this episode is going to learn so much about the blob. <laughs> well, clearly, an underserviced, underdiscussed character. We're enlightening it here. Anyways, Kitty accidentally phases through the X-Mansion security consoles, which disrupts them and gives Magneto and Juggernaut just a clear line into the X-Mansion. Professor X uses his telepathy to discover that Magneto's goal is to steal the mutant power circuit of Cerebro, the computer that Professor X uses to track mutant activity around the world, although the show never mentions that. Professor X gives the power circuit to Kitty with instructions to flee, but Magneto easily captures it. The X-Men return to find the X-Mansion in ruins and both Kitty and Professor X incapacitated. Kitty awakens to see Nightcrawler and she is once again horrified that he is that close to her. Stranger danger. The very first time he meets Kitty Pride, I should point this out, his exact words are, okay, I'm loosely paraphrasing, Froyline, what a wonderful vision you are. Please allow me. And then starts groping towards her. So, you know, maybe it, she's being a bit prejudiced because Nightcrawler looks like a blue demon. But also, I mean, that. Which is unfair because he's not that creepy in the comics that I've read him in. We'll be getting back to that. But she's 15. 14. She's 14. Oh, my God. And <laughs> he's not. He's that creepy uncle at the party that you avoid. After he recovers, Professor X uses his powers to learn the full details of Magneto's plan. Magneto intends to use the mutant power circuit to augment his own powers, and from his floating base on Asteroid M, he will capture the Scorpio Comet and redirect it on a collision course with Earth. This will kick up enough dust to start a new Ice Age, enabling mutants to wrest control from a weakened human civilization. The X-Men promptly head off to, uh, to space in order to thwart Magneto, they instruct Kitty to stay behind because she's a 14-year-old girl with no combat training, but she's... But they also don't... There's nobody there. Like, I know that this is a school, and theoretically there might be other teachers and other students, but there are not. There's no one else in the mansion. Also, K Kitty has a bee in her bonnet about proving herself after belonging with Magneto and constantly having her efficacy questioned by Wolverine, so she has decided to stow away on the Blackbird. And she tags along with the rest of the team with Professor X's blessing because he has, you know, child soldier stars glittering in his eyes. Anyways, the X-Men use their ship called the Blackbird, which is, you know, Lockheed Martin craft to fly up to Asteroid M. You know, after reaching it, each X-Men is waylaid by an engagement with a member of the Brotherhood. Nightcrawler is the only one left. He makes it to Magneto after effortlessly teleporting past the blob. And uh, Magneto is gloating over his victory at that point. He's about to blast uh, Nightcrawler with one of his little magnetic force beams. But Kitty Pride emerges from the floor and distracts him. This draws the blow towards the circuit in the comet manipulating device. With instructions from Professor X, Kitty thrusts Magneto onto a directional platform while Nightcrawler uses his own body to complete the circuit. This causes the comet's course to redirect towards asteroid M instead of Earth. Unfortunately, 
Nightcrawler must remain where he is, or the comet will redirect its course right back to Earth. Kitty tries to talk him out of his sacrifice, but uh, Nightcrawler insists that she make her escape, just as Magneto is fetching the rest of the Brotherhood and making his way on his own. The X-Men watch from the Blackbird as Nightcrawler ports out at the last possible moment before the comet hits. Uh, he appears out in space, and the X-Men try to catch him with sort of like these little grappling uh, pincers from the Blackbird, but it appears that he burns up in atmospheric re-entry before they catch him. Kitty Pride then begins sobbing because she's just so sad that her last moments were Nightcrawler didn't allow her to properly apologize for being mean to him for reacting to his creepiness the way she did. However, some coughing from a series of storage lockers revealed that Nightcrawler was able to teleport inside the ship at the last possible moment. Either he just woke up or he's just being a drama queen. The X-Men then praise Kitty for her fortitude and effort. The sole exception is Wolverine, who insists that she just got lucky and isn't an X-Men. At least, not yet. And that is the end of the episode. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, does anyone have any immediate thoughts before I start talking about the production? Yes. Professor X lies and tells her that Nightcrawler is dead, and then she starts sobbing. He clearly knew that Nightcrawler was alive and behind him. Well, I mean, that gives up a lot of pet theory that is popular amongst our peer group and in certain pockets of X-Men in general, where Professor X is very not that different from warlords who use brainwashed and drug-addicted child soldiers to carry on his methods. Yes. Yeah, he's a dick and he wanted to see that 14-year-old child cry. It creates, like, synergy amongst the team. They are all emotionally wounded people who are very dependent on him. Okay, and with that out of the way, talk about some more <laughs> about the production of it. As I mentioned earlier, this was produced by Margaret Loesch, who really thought that the X-Men were going to catch on if given a proper platform for it. More on that later. And it was written by Larry Parr, who would script two episodes of X-Men the Animated Series, including an episode of the Dark Phoenix Saga. Once again, this was intended to be a pilot for an ongoing X-Men cartoon. It was uh, initially broadcast in 1989, uh, syndicated in the Marvel Action Universe block with various other Marvel cartoons, and given a VHS release, which is my introduction to the characters after um, coming across a random issue of X-Men number two, written by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. Yeah, so we would have gotten our copy in 1992. Yeah, thereabouts, 1992. It was directed by Ray Lee. After a perusal of his IMDb page, he's mostly affiliated with Saturday Morning Cartoon Cheese from the 80s, a lot from the Marvel Studios. Uh, he worked on the Smurfs, G.I. Joe, Pink Panther, the aforementioned Fantastic Four cartoon with the robot instead of the human torch. He did Return of the Planet of the Apes, which is a DFE thing, uh, the Spider-Woman, so on and so forth. There is a story behind why this was not picked up, because they dumped a lot into this. Throughout this episode, we were mentioning, you know, how this has really great production values by the standards of an 80s cartoon. Oh yeah, the whole time everybody's got all their fingers, they have lips. Yeah, you mentioned that their mouths are moving in accordance to vowels. Yeah, they're making vowel shapes, which was mind-blowing. Also, Professor X's eyebrows literally make an ab, and I choose to believe that it has to do with the X. There's this really impressive tracking shot where the Blackbird just like pulls into Asteroid M and they tried a lot harder than they needed to. And just every shot of Magneto just looking fabulous, the way he swishes his cape as he escapes from the convoy. The man sashays with so much drama, he sparkles. 
I had a really easy time believing that a lot of people who worked on Gem and the Holograms also animated this, just based on how truly outrageous Magneto looks, and also Kitty Pride's blazer. And Kitty Pride has gorgeous fingernails. Like, I have fingernail envy of an animated character, and that's not something you would normally see from uh, Saturday morning cartoons. Another thing, too, is just the level of detail in the character design. Like, all of the characters are very distinct from each other. They have different hairstyles. Like, this isn't the case of a typical 80s cartoon where they're all just palette swaps for the sake of simplified toy production. Like, they all look like people. In the late 80s, New World Animation was struggling with cash flow, and they, along with Marvel itself, was sold to uh, Andrew's Group, which killed every ongoing production except for Muppet Babies. They had no idea why they were producing an X-Men cartoon when all these Jim Henson cartoons, especially Muppet Babies, were just this more of a sure thing. Margaret Loge, in 1990, left the company to join the Fox Network, and she was one of the founding members of Fox Kids uh, Children's Block on that network. Her first move was to license footage from a Japanese show called Super Sentai, which she contracted children's broadcasting uh, production company called Saban to add new footage to, which she then redubbed Power Rangers. This ended up being a big, fat, stinking hit, and her next move was to try to get another X-Men show up and running, because once again, she was convinced that the X-Men, as popular as they were in the comics, would be a super popular cartoon if they actually made one and marketed it properly. And she was right. Later on, News Corp, Fox's parent company, bought New World Animation's entire library in 1996. This caused some problems with Marvel, who kept fighting them over, you know, depictions of it, especially after they were bought by Disney in 2001. Uh, these legal struggles continued until Disney just bought Marvel in 2009. And that is why everything's on Disney Plus, including the DFE Marvel shows. And with that bit taken care of, we're going to tar- start talking about the themes of this. Now, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is how, well... This show does mention persecution of mutants and Kitty Pryde being self-conscious about being perceived as a freak because of her powers and all that. Overall, this show kind of downplays the X-Men as a civil rights metaphor. It might have been something that they introduced later, but it's it's just sort of in the backdrop for this one, which I don't hate that choice because sometimes, it, sometimes <laughs> uh, the X-Men go a little overboard with it. But I want to know how you guys feel, feel about it. I mean, it's, it's there at the beginning. Anytime they interact with the humans, the humans are hostile. Um, the the they, normal humans, you mean? Yeah, well, I mean, homo sapien, homo superior, there's a distinction made. But, like, they use, you know, the slur, mutie, constantly. Like, it's very implied that mutants are seen as a scary other that needs to be put down. Like, they even, like, use that language about Magneto. And there's also that bit where the X-Men are fighting Blob and Pyro, and uh, they have human hostages, and they save them, and Nightcrawler helps the little girl get her, like, dolly back, and the parents are like, don't take that, the stinking mutie had his hands on it. Well, what bothers me, though, is Magneto called himself essentially not a normal human, and not a human. He was like, we're mutants, they're normal humans. Yeah, that's a thing in X-Men. They make a distinction between the humans and the mutants. I like the homo superior thing because it makes me think of the David Bowie song. Sometimes in the comics, the mutants refer to humans as flat scans. That's like the reverse slur, like how some queer people refer to uh, heteros as birthers. I was called a breeder a lot in high school. 
despite the fact that the civil rights metaphor is sort of downplay compared to how extra the X-Men get about it, they really focus on mutation as a puberty metaphor, uh, particularly with Kitty Pride. I think a lot of it just draws parallels to, say, Harry Potter, which is a dubious thing to discuss, especially right now. But uh-huh. I think I think the X-Men and Harry Potter just sort of have this shared idea of like, hey, are you 14 years old? Do you feel alienated and divorced from the rest of humanity? Are you going through some weird changes? Well, guess what? Those weird changes don't make you a weirdo or a freak. They mean that you're special and better than everyone else. Come to our special school where you will protect and, and help the, the people who don't deserve it because you're better than them. That's like most of why in the past like decade and a half. Yeah, Harry Potter and the X-Men going on that train before it started getting big. One thing we want to talk about uh, more specifically is Kitty Pride and the use of this character in this episode. Now, Sarah, Kitty Pride is your favorite X-Man. Yes, she is. I love her. I, I named my new car after her. I think this uh, this pilot might be part of the reason why it took me a while to warm up to her, because I, I watched our VHS of this obsessively when I was six, like over and over and over again. And I did not like Kitty. I found her very whiny and annoying because as a small child watching the show, she seemed like an adult instead of a baby, as a 14-year-old seems to be now. And in my opinion, she should have been excited about having powers. So I just thought she was real annoying the whole time. Whereas now, it's like, yes, she's a 14-year-old girl. This should be horrifying to her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally different perspective watching this as a 34-year-old than as a 6-year-old. And if this version of the show had been picked up, my assumption is that down the line, Kitty would have gradually grown more assertive and confident in her role, and she would have won over the team members one by one, and then Wolverine would have taken her in as sort of a kid sister sidekick. Or she could have just been like Jubilee in the animated series. <laughs> All of my siblings and myself were, were Kitty Pride stands, and if you like Kitty Pride, you kind of hate Jubilee. Because Jubilee is like a replacement Kitty Pride, and to us, Jubilee is not as good. And a giant Dazzler. <laughs> I guess if you have a preference for Dazzler, <laughs> like Cheryl, <laughs> Jubilee feels like a low rent Dazzler. That's annoying. <laughs> it's really we need to find somebody less useful than Dazzler. Just it, because you make them doesn't mean you can call them whatever you want. It's just light. Fireworks. I know you're going to quote that Pete Holmes sketch at some point or another. Yep. Another bit is that uh, in the comics themselves, Kitty Pride is initially a little reserved about Nightcrawler, a little prejudiced, creeped out by being around him, and she has to get over that. And they try to do that storyline in this episode, but it doesn't work out. Even though the the show itself is very much trying to like paint Kitty as you're in the wrong here, not, not Nightcrawler or Creeper in this He's super creepy. And he's not like this in the comics themselves. No, Nightcrawler is delightful. Nightcrawler is a cinnamon roll. I mean, the first instinct would be like, this man has never been socialized in his life. So like, yeah, okay, I can understand overreaching with the whole like physical affection and like really laying on the welcome to the team stuff. But she clearly responded that she needed space, no touching. Like, that was present when she phased through a computer to get away from him. So the second instance, when he's just like, hey, let's try that again. I've learned no lesson. That's when he's creepy for me. And after he almost dies, she kisses him on the cheek. It's a weird message about sexual harassment. 
Yeah, the X-Men's good at those. My favorite character is Rogue. (laughs) (laughs) Often Kitty is used as an audience POV character. The 13-year-olds reading X-Men comics in the early 1980s, that was the Target demo. They wouldn't immediately identify with Wolverine or Colossus or Storm. That's something that you would project yourself onto as sort of like uh, the fantasy figure that could be better than you were. But Kitty Pride is closer to what you actually are. Editors have noticed that out of all the fan mail, X-Men, who had always had like an inordinate female readership compared to other Marvel books, uh, especially at the time, a lot of them projected themselves on the Kitty Pride. That's the main appeal of the character. And lots of 13-year-old boys had a crush on her because she was kind of nerdy and good with computers and socially awkward, just like they were. And there's just a lot of riffs on this new character is being introduced to the X-Mansion. And this is a good soft reset because you can just sort of explain facets of X-Men lore to this new character as they walk in. It's an obvious step, but people keep using it because that's the way it is. And when they launched X-Men the Animated Series in 1992, Jubilee was this character, which is why Kitty Pride never shows up on that show over the course of its five seasons. It makes me so angry. Flame? So angry. On the side of your face. Heaving breaths. Trevor Fitzroy gets to be in a couple of episodes. Nightcrawler is downplayed as well, but he gets two episodes. But Kitty Pride never shows up at all. And she's in all the other X-Men cartoons. She's in X-Men Evolution. She's in uh, Wolverine in the X-Men. But not the one that is the most successful. It's bullshit, is what it is. It's bullshit. Rogue's around, though. Yeah, I think the worst example is the when they adapt Days of Future Past, where Kitty is the central character. Oh, my God. They replace her with Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really enjoyed this. It's so obnoxious. And when they do the movie, they replace her with Wolverine. Oh my god! <laughs> Titty is not the central character in either Days of Future Past adaptation. Alright, this brings me to a segment that I like to call, Why the Fuck is Wolverine Australian? Be nice to Hugh Jackman. Alright, alright, Hugh Jackman was asked to do a North American accent when he was cast. He, he does not do his natural accent. But yes... This prefaces uh, the very Australian Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine. So, in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and also in this pilot, Wolverine has an Australian accent, which I... Of sorts. <laughs> of sorts. It, it's, um, it's, it's what someone who's never been to Australia has only ever heard maybe one Australian person speak in their entire life. And or is just... solely uh, informed from Dunkaroos commercials. Yeah. Modern life. Okay. Actually, Rocco does a better job, I think. Isn't Rocco supposed to be from New Zealand? No, Wallabies are indigenous to Australia. He's Australian. Oh, okay. I've skimmed through a couple of uh, explanations for this. Uh, One thing is that he refers to Toad as a dingo, and people just assume that it was built around that, but that's not the case because in Spider Man and his amazing friends, he also have a Larry the Cable Guy Australian accent, so that's not it. The most convincing one uh, I got was from Rick Holberg, who's a storyboard artist and finisher on Amazing Friends and also Pride. He claims that Wolverine's Australian shoehorning was an attempt to play into a 1980s pop culture fad where Australian culture just sort of got weirdly popular in America for a hot minute. Men at Work got a number one hit with The Land from Down Under, and the Mad Max movies were freakishly popular here, and the Crocodile Dundee movies caught on. There was a Simpsons episode where they made fun of this. Yeah, I was going to say, is everybody trying real hard right now not to quote The Simpsons? Yeah. 
And they decided to play into that, that they were going to retcon Wolverine into an expatriated Australian. And Holberg also claimed that the comics were going into this direction as well. There is no evidence of the latter point. For instance, Wolverines, like the animal, they are not indigenous to Australia. They can only be found in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Canada. And also on his very first appearance in Incredible Hulk number 181, on the cover blurb, it is specified that Wolverine is the first Canadian superhero, which is not true. But it's the first Marvel Canadian superhero, so whatever. He is established as Canadian in his early appearances, including Giant Size X-Men number 1, 1975. And Wolverine is explicitly Canadian in his first ongoing solo book in 1988, which is a year before this. Uh, what how- saying is, he's Australian. <laughs> well, at- I think maybe they just really, really wanted to round out the accents. I mean... Nightcrawler is aggressively German. Storm is doing whatever the hell they think a Kenyan accent is there. And then, you know. Colossus. Colossus is <laughs> in such a mess. <laughs> yes, and then you get Australian. I mean, what if they were going to go like stereotypical Canadian, they'd probably just, you know, do a lot of a boot. At the time, the uh, X-Men in the comics were operating out of the Australian outback. That's possibly an influence on the whole Wolverine is supposed to be Australian, but uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, one thing that I mentioned when we were talking about Kitty Pride is that I am so relieved that there is no sexual tension between Kitty Pride and Colossus in this cartoon. Because, once again, he's doing moose and squirrel accent. Uh, I mentioned this in the previous episode, but it appears that Russian is the only like nationality or ethnic group where you can do full burlesque cartoon stereotype without getting a whole lot of blowback from people who accuse you of being xenophobic. Okay, I'll give you that. But to be fair, in the cartoon that we just watched, when she needs to be comforted, she hugs his hips, not his chest. That's because she doesn't reach his chest. She's because she's a child and he's very clearly not. She crouched down. In the comics, Kitty is introduced when she is 14 and Colossus is like, 19 and she instantly has a crush on him and they start getting more like romantically attached to each other when kitty is like 15 or 16 and it's weird and the comic frames it is like why won't people understand our forbidden love and i'm legal reasons whereas and later on where marvel comics are smarter to make their superheroes more of indiscriminate age and you know kitty pride is a bit younger than Colossus, but still a legal adult. Their relationship is less odd. I said less, not not. Yeah, Kitty Pride and Colossus don't end well. Well, they're married now in the comics. Wasn't she with Star-Lord? Yeah, she dated Star-Lord, but they broke up and she got married to Colossus. That's like a size down. Yeah. Colossus is a step down from Star-Lord. Yeah. Aren't we, like, plateauing here? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Colossus is a doof, but he's he's a sweet doof. But she could have been a star lady. There, there was very different in the comics. I haven't read many comics with Star Lord, but I don't consider him a character. Yeah, he... in, in the comics, yeah. they made him more like the movie character after the movies became popular. So he's he's a bit of a fuckboy. Moving on to the legacy. First noteworthy thing is the X-Men animation special, which came out in 1990, a year after this. If you are familiar with your local comic shop's dollar bin, you'll probably come across this. It is a graphic novel that adapts the Pride of the X-Men episode with uh, animation cells inserted instead of new artwork. 
it's pretty rinky-dink. Uh, there were a number of video games, including X-Men, Madness, and Murder World, which was released in 1989, the same year as the special. This is a side-scrolling puzzle game that was made for MS-DOS. That's a throwback. The Commodore 64, which feels like less of a throwback, weirdly enough, to, at least to me, and the Amiga. This uses the pride of the X-Men cast as well. Now, some people argue that the 1990 8-bit Nintendo X-Men game also uses the pride cast, which I think is a bit of a reach. And also, that game is terrible, so the less said about it, the better. The one that is actually you know, worth talking about is the X-Men arcade game produced by Konami in 1992. Oh, that got so many of my quarters. This is roughly the same time they did the uh, the Ninja Turtles speed 'em up game and Turtles in Time and the and the Simpsons one. Even though those characters are an awkward fit for the genre. Yeah, but that game is fun. Also, the the X Men arcade game got a lot of my quarters because I was very bad at it. Well, you get the pay to play. Good. Don't worry about it. The game is modeled after uh, Double Dragon, Final Fight, Streets of Rage, all those yeah! little, you know, walking up and down the side of the screen while you fight a succession of uh, underpowered baddies, and the game just leeches quarters from you the whole time. Now, this sort of thing is my goddamn jam. As soon as Streets of Rage uh, 4 came out, I downloaded it right to my Switch and just played through it a whole bunch of times. I love this genre, so the fact that the X-Men, my favorite thing ever, was combined with one of my preferred video game genres, I, I, I got this for my phone and just kept playing it, even though it didn't quite work yeah, in that were, format. There were days in the 90s where we would like get up, play with our X-Men action figures, watch Pride of the X-Men or the X-Men animated series on TV, go outside, pretend to be X-Men, then go down to the mall, play some quarters in the... Uh, x-men arcade game and then go buy some trading cards and comic books and go home and then play more x-men action figures like that was our world at the time it also uses the pride cast in most of the animations although they add extra characters like wendigo and mystique and also some fun badly translated japanese to english dialogue exclusively spoken by magneto who says both welcome to die and i am magneto Master of Magnet. <laughs> Since we're on the subject of Magneto's fabulousness, I should also point out that the Magneto that appears in Pride is not quite the anti-hero that you're familiar with from X-Men the Animated Series and the movies, where he is a Holocaust survivor with a messiah complex who has gone into anti-human terrorism because he believes he can protect the mutant race from the persecution he experienced when he was a child. That complexity is not in Magneto in Pride. He is essentially Dr. Doom, except he's red and purple instead of green. Also, he punches dragons for no reason. Yeah, I didn't mention that Lockheed is in this. Lockheed is on Asteroid M as a sort of a pest, this little baby purple dragon that Magneto keeps kicking. And then at the end, Kitty Pride just sort of scoops him up and takes him on the ship with her. Lockheed is amazing. He's like a little stress dragon that you like, like a purse dragon you carry around to reduce stress. But the way he reduced his stress was punching. Should also point out that in the comics, they've given up on Magneto being an anti-hero. He's just flat out a protagonist now. The X-Men does that with a lot of their villains, though. Like, I can't think of a villain that hasn't at some point ended up on the team. Cassandra Nova, uh, Sinister... No, 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 we, we had a conversation. Sinister does Sinister come on the team, doesn't he? Oh. oh, yeah, kind of. I was about to mention the Brood, but one of the Brood are on the team. Yeah. See, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult. What about Mojo? Oh, yeah, Mojo's never been on the team. Okay. We got two. <laughs> Dark small bottom. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a spoiled 
egg slimer guy. Well, I should also talk about the voice cast of this. Most of this were people who worked for DFE and Hanna-Barbera over the years. Most noteworthy being uh, Frank Welker, who voices Toad. Toad is he's exactly what his name sounds like. He has hopping powers, and he sometimes has a prehensile tongue, but not in this cartoon. And he's also Magneto's Toady. Yeah, you get it? And over the course of this episode, Toad is bugging Magneto, and Magneto tells him to just go play in an airlock. And according to Sylvan, that is the best thing that Magneto has ever said. I didn't even fully understand what it meant when I was a kid, but I like He says it with such gravitas. <laughs> but also, why is Toad dressed like a medieval page boy? I don't know. Jack Kirby just wanted to do it that way. Um, you know, Toad very sensibly decides that he's going to want to fight with uh, Wolverine and that that's going to work out for him. How could that go wrong? Also, Wolverine easily defeats Toad, but then just sort of stays behind and lets the X-Men run off without him. I choose to believe he's taunting him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Welker is best known for voicing Fred on Scooby-Doo, although he's also been Scooby for the past 20 years. Long resume. He's also Iceman on uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and uses the Fred voice, which even when I was seven, I found that weird. If you've ever watched anything animated ever, you've heard Frank Walker's work. His IMDb page is like, it took me over an hour to go through it the time I sat down and did that. So yeah, he's Toad and Lockheed and he's the most famous voice actor on this famous asterisk. Wait, he's the dragon? Yeah, he also does the little dragon noises. The dragon made noises? Oh, he, he specializes in animal noises. If you look at his IMDb page, any character you've heard that is an animal or part animal is him. Good for, good for him. Yeah, the next most noteworthy person is uh, Kath Susie, who is Kitty Pride. She is best known for being Linka on Captain Planet and the Planeteer. She used the exact same voice for uh, Gem and the Holograms. I forget the name of her character, but she's in, like, one of the evil bands, not the Misfits, the other one. Yeah, they, she's um, part of the season three um, evil band. Um, she's also uh, prominent in the Rugrats. She's also in Tiny Toon. She's Fifi the Skunk. She's also Lola Bunny in Space Jam. And in case you were worrying if the new Space Jam film was going to renege on the established integrity of the first film, <laughs> she is coming back to be Lola Bunny in that one as well. Good for her. More work. I've never been crazy about Lola Bunny as a character. Uh, I don't really want to get into it here. Although I do like when Kristen Wiig voiced her. Was that when she was the stalker? Yeah, that's when she was the over-the-top parody of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. That's a good Lola. Yes, it is. Uh, the next person I noted was uh, John Stevenson as Professor X. I just like his voice. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he has a long resume as well. His very first appearance was like a guest spot in I Love Lucy. He's been like every Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Apparently, he's like half the cast of Johnny Quest. Okay, that explains why his voice is so amazing. I know. He just has this nice, dulcet tone. I mean, not that I disliked Professor X on the 1992 show that actually got successful, but I, I like this Professor X just purely on his delivery. And, well, that's the extent of my notes. And despite the fact that this show is 22 minutes long, we're approaching the one-hour mark on this episode. So we <laughs> should probably wrap it up. Good job reining me in, everyone. Well, I was going to mention that, well, uh, uh, we're going to do Howard the Duck on Saturday. And I was going to talk about how Howard the Duck is the first Marvel superhero to get a movie, but they almost made a Dazzler movie. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's a Howard the Duck thing to talk about with you. Anyways, does anyone have some final thoughts before we wrap this up? I do.
Is it beef did nothing wrong? <laughs> yes. Does anyone else want to say something perhaps X-Men related? <laughs> I, I think an hour on a 20-minute sales pilot is probably good. <laughs> yeah, I think we're done. <laughs> All right, good night, everybody.